1: You know, I was an alderman, as you're well aware, for almost 20 years, 19 years. And when I was alderman, I used to pray for cold and rainy summers. It would keep people in their houses, um, not out in the street fussing with each other or getting into altercations with the police. So, you know, I'm praying for a cold and rainy summer. Hi, everybody. I'm
0: Fran Spielman. Back in the corner of my bedroom where my desk is, with cook county board president tony preckwinkle tony how are you good morning you are self-quarantining this week and i guess next week too because one of your uh members of your security detail tested positive how are you feeling how is he or she feeling
1: well i'm fine thank you very much for asking Actually, the last time I was in the presence of our staff person who has COVID-19 was the 27th of March. So fortunately for me, the end of the day today is the end of my quarantine. We didn't uh, realize that he had it until um, Tuesday. So it, the decision was that I should, I should self-quarantine for the remainder of the 14-day period. And frankly, so that I'm, very
0: I'm, I'm very grateful that he's doing well. So that expires today. That's right. And, and what will you do differently when you, when you get out of this uh, self-imposed
1: quarantine? <laughs> Go to the store. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, really, this has been extraordinary. And I, I, I like to say we learn a lot about ourselves in a crisis. I think in my case, I'm going to learn what color my hair really is. How about you? What have you learned about yourself during all this?
1: Well, my hair is really gray, so (laughs) I don't have to worry about that. Um, No, you know, this has been a really difficult time, I think, for everybody. And uh, I'm really grateful to the great team that we have in the county. Lennetta Haynes-Turner, my chief of staff, has been wonderful. And the other folks in the team have been working really hard and we're doing the best we can in an extraordinarily difficult circumstance. And I'm grateful to everybody. You know, I'm particularly grateful to our healthcare staff um, this is this is a tough time to be a healthcare worker, and um, thank God for them. I'm grateful to our Department of Corrections staff. You know, again, this is a this is a very difficult time to be working at the jail, and uh, you know, to all the folks out there who work in, in grocery stores and deliver food and packages to the rest of us who are who are at home. Um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to everybody who has kind of stepped up in this crisis.
0: Now let's talk about the jail. Uh, another inmate has died there. A federal judge has ordered Sheriff Dart to do more to give the inmates uh, sanitizing equipment and to do more to protect them, but has not released uh, the inmates over 65 as some of the plaintiffs wanted. How do you feel the jail is doing? It is the hotbed of the nation, really, for this. Is Sheriff Dart doing enough? What should be done if not?
1: Well, I think the thing to remember, Fran, is this is the largest single site jail in the country, the largest single site jail. You know, when I came into office, we had an average daily census, that's 10 years ago now, we had an average daily census of 10 to 11,000 people in the jail. And we've worked very hard with all the stakeholders, uh, led by Chief Judge Tim Evans, State's Attorney Tim Fox, Public Defender Amy Campanelli, uh, (coughs) Clerk Dorothy Brown, and Sheriff Tom Dart, of course, Work very hard to reduce the jail population by releasing those accused of nonviolent crimes, nonviolent crimes. And frankly, we've worked hardest on this uh, collaboratively since 2016. And you'll recall that 2016 was the year in which we had an incredible number of shootings and murders in Chicago. And those violent crimes have been declining over the last three and a half years, four years, at the same time that we've been most successful in our criminal justice reform efforts reducing the jail population. So we've, re- we've reduced the number of people in the jail. It was, it, for about a year, it was averaging a little less than 6,000. And we've worked hard over the last uh, several months to reduce the jail population further. The last number I heard was about 4,600 people in the jail. So let me, let me just speak to this one person. The person who died was accused of molesting children. There was no way that person was gonna get out of jail. No way. We're trying to release people accused of nonviolent crimes. We're trying to get the jail population as low as we can, but there are limits to that. As I said, we're not going to release people who are accused of crimes against children, people who are accused of murder. I mean, they're going to stay in jail. And the jail is a congregate facility. It's our equivalent of a cruise ship or a nursing home. I often say it's a Petri dish. So we're going to continue to see people contract the disease. And unfortunately, there'll be people who succumb to it. Uh, just because it's a jail. Now, the sheriff is doing everything he can to put people in single cells and to try to reduce the um, contact that people have with each other, but a jail is a very difficult place in which to practice social distancing.
0: So, is he doing enough?
1: You know, I think that the sheriff is doing the best he can under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Extraordinarily difficult circumstances.
0: And more people are going to die there. Just flat out, you just said that. I mean, that it's, it's almost unavoidable, really.
1: As I said, more people will contract the disease and some will succumb to it.
0: Yeah. Um, you closed the emergency room at Provident Hospital. Why did you do that at a time when African-Americans are bearing the brunt of this? Doesn't it make it worse?
1: No, of course not. First of all, the reason that we closed the emergency room is that one of the healthcare workers got COVID-19 and we sent an infectious, team, uh, infectious disease team over to Providence to look at the space to try to figure out what was going on there. Um, what they determined is that there was no way to practice social distancing given the way that the emergency room, our emergency department was configured. So we said, and this is at the beginning of this week, We'll close down the emergency room for a maximum of four weeks. We'll try to get it done quickly, Uh, tear out the walls, try to entirely reconfigure the space so we can practice the social distancing that's required in this pandemic. So that's what we're doing. We're we're trying to make the the emergency room a safe place for the people who work there and for the people who come in as patients. And the hospital itself remains open. It's a 24-bed hospital. It remains open, and we have the capacity should a surge surge, tax our Stroger Hospital capacity. We have the capacity to expand the number of beds in use at Provident. At Stroger, we presently have about 200 patients, half of whom, 100 of whom, have COVID-19. So this is this is a real challenging time for us. But normal census at the, at, at Stroger is about 300. So we have some capacity there for more COVID-19 patients and we have capacity, should we have the staffing, to increase the capacity at Provident as well.
0: Right, but we're not yet at the top of the curve, I guess, and what kind of a strain is this going to put on Stroger and
1: on, and on county finances? Well, first of all, let's speak to Stroger. As I said, we have capacity at Stroger to uh, accommodate another 100 patients. It's a question of staffing levels. And I'm very grateful to the governor who's provided some assistance and support at CERMAC, which is part of our health and hospital system, and is the clinic at, at the 26th and California Detention Center for Adults, the 26th and California Jail. Um, so that's the, the real challenge for us has been staffing, uh, both at, at uh, the jail at CERMAC and, and at Stroger. And we're grateful to the governor. He promised us uh, 80 additional nurses and physicians' assistance starting this weekend at CERMAC and and that should be extraordinarily helpful to us.
0: Yeah. How many people are calling in sick on a daily basis at those places?
1: I can't tell you. Yeah. It's been a, cha- well, it's a they, challenge across our healthcare it, system. Not just our yeah. not just the public health system, across all of our healthcare providers.
0: Now, the county budget is incredibly dependent on economically sensitive revenues, particularly the sales tax, the hotel tax. How big is the hole in the county budget likely to be now that the local economy has literally ground to a halt?
1: I can't say that, but um, our Amar Ritsky, our chief financial officer, has shared with me that 65% of our our revenues are... um, impacted by the fact that the economy has fallen off the cliff. Um, So that includes our sales tax revenues, things like hotel and motel taxes, uh, you know, car rental taxes. All of those things are impacted by uh, the fact that the economy, as I said, has has fallen off the cliff. So there will be a tremendous impact, not just for us, but for the city and other local units of government. Fortunately for all of us, um, the the first payment of our property tax was due March first, so before the the full impact of the pandemic uh, descended upon us, we got in a lot of revenue in that first uh, property tax payment.
0: So, how do but you plan to fill this? Whatever this hole is, I'm I'm sorry. How do you plan to? Go ahead.
1: I didn't hear you, Fran. Oh, I'm
0: I'm asking. Um, whatever the, do you have a sense of what the hole is, and how do you plan to fill it, and what steps are you taking now to minimize the impact?
1: Well, first of all, um, our chief financial officer, as I said, Amar Ritsky and his team are looking carefully at our present finances and uh, trying to figure out what are reasonable projections. This is—it's extraordinarily difficult in this time to make projections. Um, but they're doing their best. And so hopefully by the end of the month, we'll have a better sense of where we are and what we might expect going forward. Needless to say, we're trying to uh, halt all discretionary spending, uh, do everything we can to conserve resources. We met the requirement of the Government Financial Officers Administration or Association, GFOA, which was two months of reserves, but we're coming um, close to the end of that two-month period. And so this is going forward, it's going to be a real challenge. We continue to um, ask people to stay home in and, and county and, and pay them to stay home because we think that's the responsible thing to do. Uh, but the financial challenges are just going to be magnified going forward.
0: Do you anticipate any
1: layoffs or furloughs? I'm not going to speak to that. I have I have no idea how how we're going to deal with the challenges ahead of us. But as I said, my financial team is working hard to to figure out not only where we are, but Projections going forward, and then we'll we'll have to take some difficult uh, steps. Well, where would you look first? I think I've said all I'm going to say on this, Fran. Um, My financial team is looking carefully at it, and um, we'll be sure to share with the public when we've got a sense of the direction in which we're heading. Can you
0: rule out raising taxes?
1: I'm not going to rule out anything. I mean, we. This is, this is um, an economic nightmare. In addition to being a health nightmare, it's an economic nightmare. And uh, frankly, the sheltering in place has been remarkably uh, successful in helping us uh, diminish the impact of the pandemic. But that doesn't mean we're gonna be immune from the pandemic and it surely doesn't mean we're gonna be immune from the economic consequences of sheltering in place. How long can you afford to pay people to stay home? As I said, that's something our financial team is is looking at, and we hope by the end of April to have a sense of where we are.
0: Now, the stimulus money, the city claims that it's going to get five hundred seventy-two million easy itself, CTA eight hundred million, CPS another two hundred five. What's the county going to get?
1: That's another thing my financial team is working on, and I'm not going to speculate on, on what the resources available are. Um, we have a great team in Washington looking at the bill and trying to figure out how we can access resources, and we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be doing everything we can to get every dollar that we can, especially since we're, we're delivering health care services and providing services in the criminal justice system, which we hope will be eligible for reimbursement.
0: But you don't have a ballpark figure yet? No. Now, you created a $10 million fund for small business. Are there any other economic relief plans in the works
1: for you? Well, the first thing we did was, was uh, eliminate some, some fees and fines for folks, and we deferred collection of, of taxes. And it basically was a $35 million interest-free loan to our businesses, so they had a little more working capital to address the challenges they face. We also have a partnership with the American Immigration Business Council, the National I think Association National Partnership for New Americans, and the Illinois Restaurant Association to try to help people access the 377 billion dollars that's in the CARES Act to support small businesses and independent contractors. So first, we we deferred uh, tax collections and eliminated fines and fees to the tune of 35 million dollars to support our small businesses. We uh, engage in a partnership with uh, with other actors to get people information about applying for the federal resources and then of course we set up our own ten million dollar uh, fund recovery fund in to enable small businesses of 25 workers or less you know the small business administration um, has a 500 employee threshold as a small business we made it for very small businesses 25 employees or less independent contractors and gig workers businesses can get 20,000 no-interest loans for five years. Individuals, independent contractors, gig workers can get $10,000 loans for five years at no interest. And this is for suburban Cook County because that's where our resources are supposed to be directed, suburban Cook County. And so it's a $10 million fund. So those are the three things that we're doing to try to support our small businesses, independent contractors, not-for-profits, and gig workers.
0: Now, the morgue has horribly and yet necessarily created or uh, established a refrigerated warehouse to store thousands of bodies, 66,000 square feet. Do you think we're going to need that?
1: I hope not, but we want to be prepared for any eventuality. And I know that you were covering the city in the 90s when we had 1995, when we had that terrible heat wave, and I think more than 900 people lost their lives in Chicago. And what I recall is refrigerated trucks stacking up the parking lot at the medical examiner's office. And we didn't want to be in that position again. We wanted to treat the deceased with dignity. And so we arranged for the surge center so that we could do that.
0: Dr. Terry Mason, you fired him as chief operating officer for the county department of health. Why would you do that in the middle of this? What happened?
1: There's no good time to make high, per- high profile personnel changes. Yeah, I'm very grateful to Terry Mason for his service to the county. He's a very good uh, public educator, outreach work, particularly to the African-American community, reminding us of the diabetes and hypertension and heart disease that plague our communities and what we can do ourselves to mitigate some of the impacts of those diseases. This is a time, however, in which we need strong operational leadership. And Dr. Rachel Rubin and Dr. Josie... Kieran Joshi, Joshi, there we go. Kieran Joshi uh, are co leaders now of our Department of Public Health, and I have great confidence in them. But what was wrong with Dr. Mason? Where, did, where was he lacking? As I said, this is a time when we need strong operational leadership, and I'm grateful to Dr. Rachel Rubin and to Dr. Kieran Joshi for stepping up and leading that department. And yet some of the county
0: commissioners believe that the timing was wrong and that you might have made a mistake in that. What do you say to them?
1: Well, actually, I've talked to every county commissioner a number of times over the last several weeks, and uh, they have not shared that view with me. So I will just tell you that we made the decision. uh, Deborah Carey, our interim chief executive officer at the hospital, and I made the decision, and um, I am I strongly believe that Rachel Rubin and uh, Kieran Joshi will provide the leadership that we need in the Department of Public Health.
0: Can you tell me where he didn't provide strong operational leadership? Uh, You know, I've
1: said all I'm going to say on this. Why don't you ask me another question, Fran?
0: Okay. All right. I'll move on then. percent of the deaths in Chicago were African Americans. It wasn't surprising given all the other challenges, and yet it was heartbreaking. What needs to be done about that?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say, in a, in a healthcare crisis like this, the communities that are most marginalized will be the most heavily impacted. There's just no doubt about that. In the fall of uh, November of, of uh, 2018, I, I gave a, a speech, I think, at the at the City Club, talking about racial equity, and we reported on a year and a half work by my chief of staff, Lynetta Haynes-Turner and our senior leadership around racial equity issues because we decided that that was a, a challenge that we needed to address publicly uh, in, as, as, a, as a county leader and that also that we needed to look at, at, at all the challenges we faced through an equity lens. And surely healthcare is one of those issues that's heavily impacted by inequality and inequity. And uh, you know, everything we've done over the last a couple of years, we've tried to do uh, with that focus of what, what is this, who's, who's helped and who's burdened, and how does this impact, in particular, um, those that are in our communities who are most marginalized, and that's basically people of color, particularly African-Americans.
0: The mayor has closed the lakefront in the 606 trail. She's cut off citywide liquor sales at 9 p.m. She's driven around and ordered groups of people to break it up. Her police department has even set up checkpoints in every district. How do you think she's doing in, this, in all of this?
1: You know, I, I'm going to talk about what we're doing in the forest preserves. You know, we closed all our visitor centers. We closed all our nature centers. Uh, the forest preserves, and we, we're not having any picnics or family reunions or whatever, but the forest preserves remain open for people. We have 70,000 acres of, of forest preserves, 300 miles of trails. So there's plenty of opportunity for people to get out, get some fresh air, get some exercise, and maintain social distancing. And if we find that there are parts of the preserves where people aren't able to do that, unable or unwilling, we'll close those parts of the preserves. But the forest preserves remain open to the public, and I'm grateful for that.
0: So do you think she's gone a little too far in this? Uh, You haven't had to play the policing role like she has.
1: You know, I'm responsible for the forest preserves, so I'll be glad to talk to you about that, which I have. But do you think it was necessary to do what she's done? Fran, let me say it again. I'm responsible for the forest preserves, and I just told you what we've done in the forest preserves.
0: But I covered a news conference yesterday where there was criticism of what they believe are racist policing policies that have no place even in a pandemic, the idea of checkpoints, asking people to show an ID, uh, curfews at five o'clock in some neighborhoods. Does that go too far?
1: Does that trouble you at all? You know, I'd be happy to talk to you about the things for which I am responsible.
0: Okay. Uh, You're a former teacher. What about the plan for remote learning at CPS? is that good enough do you think uh are you worried about the kids in the have not areas falling further behind in this last year where we also saw a teacher strike
1: well i'm very grateful to uh howard males who's been uh, our point person on the digital divide and he's been very helpful in identifying a big challenge that we face in cook county a quarter of our households have no access to broadband One quarter of our households have no access to broadband. And furthermore, even in some households where they have access to broadband, they don't have computers in the house. So the challenge for all of our educational uh, systems, all of our school districts across the county is how are we going to ensure that every student has access to e-learning when as I said, a quarter of the households don't have access to broadband, and many households do not have computers in their home, even if they do have access to broadband. Or if they have a computer at home, if the parents are home and trying to work remotely, it's very difficult for the young people to have access to the computer in the way that they would need to to be responsive to e-learning requirements.
0: So it's going to be, it's going to be tough to salvage the rest of the school year, and given that.
1: Well, I think that's unquestionably true, not just here, but across the country.
0: Yeah. You weren't a fan of Eddie Johnson. You had, if you had won the mayoral election, you would have fired him. How do you feel about David Brown, the former uh, Dallas police chief?
1: I don't know anything about him other than what I read in the newspapers. I wish him the best of luck. He's going to have a really challenging job. True. But, I mean,
0: how do you feel about the choice? Is, is, is he up to the job? I mean, it's extraordinary. We just saw the other day the, the violent outbreak when the temperatures went up, and we're going to see it again. We know, sadly, it's true. Uh, Charlie Beck said that Chicago has two pandemics, and only one of them is a virus. The other, of course, is violence.
1: You know, I was an alderman, as you're well aware, for almost 20 years, 19 years. And when I was alderman, I used to pray for cold and rainy summers. It would keep people in their houses, um, not out in the street fussing with each other or getting into altercations with the police. So, you know, I'm praying for a cold and rainy summer.
0: (laughs) And it might even be a lost summer. The governor is warning that we're not going to see the festivals. We can't. We can't allow large crowds like Lollapalooza, Taste of Chicago, Do you think it's going to be a lost summer? Will the festivals that we so much enjoy in Chicago, how much we celebrate and wait for the summer and the warm weather month? Is all that lost to us?
1: I think the social distancing um, imperative is going to be with us for a while. You know, Dr. Rachel Rubin, as I said, is one of our co-leaders now at the Department of Public Health, and she has cautioned that uh, we're not really going to get a handle on the pandemic until we have a vaccine, and the vaccine is 18 months away. That's next year.
0: So what what, what do you think that means for everyday life? I mean, are we going to see restaurants having to reduce the number of tables? What? what I mean, are we ever, you know, what, what, how will life look like when we open up again in some kind of way?
1: You know, I don't have any idea. And um, it remains to be seen how steeply the the curve will decline uh, once we reach a peak and what impact that'll have on our um, social distancing requirements. Um, I think that the large gatherings are probably a thing of the past for a while, uh, just because we're gonna have to maintain social distancing for the foreseeable future. You know, (laughs) let me just say, so I'm a history teacher. I talk about this all the time. Last time we had a pandemic of this magnitude was 100 years ago, the Spanish flu of 1917 to 1919. It went on for two years. Now, the longer the pandemic goes along, the fewer people either haven't gotten the disease or succumb. So the pool of people who are susceptible gets smaller and smaller, but that doesn't mean that the virus goes away.
0: So what is that likely to mean? I mean, we're not going to shut down the economy until we get a vaccine. So there's going to be some interim... Measures. What are they likely to be? I mean, are are restaurants going to be ordered to have only a certain number of tables with a certain amount of distance? What What is it likely to be that interim step?
1: I I have no idea. uh, To be determined. We're struggling now with shelter in place. You know, as we as we come out of that, we'll try to figure out what comes next. But at the moment, you know, the shelter in in place requirements I think are appropriate and necessary, and are not going to be it's gonna be weeks before they're, before they're lifted.
0: Unemployment, 201,000 Illinois residents filed. In the past three weeks, 493,500. How long is the economy locally going to take to come back?
1: I have no way of predicting that. And frankly, what we all need, local units of government at all levels, and surely our state governments is federal support I presume there are gonna be more stimulus packages. This 2.2 trillion one was just the beginning. Um, I won't say it's a drop in the bucket, but it's surely a beginning. The federal government is gonna have to provide substantial and significant support to local units of government and to the national economy for the foreseeable future, and that means several years. And you are the Cook County Democratic Chairman. What's
0: the impact likely to be on the election in November?
1: Um I can't are people I was, be I was grateful. I was able to conduct our election on the seventeenth of March and grateful for the outcomes for the Democratic Party. We we carried all of our major races, almost all of our major races, not quite all. Um, and the Democratic Party did better than it has in the past in terms of having a diverse slate and electing those diverse candidates. But how are we are how are we needing to
0: change the way people vote for November, do you think?
1: Well, in this election, I think more people than ever uh, either voted early or mailed in their ballots. And I think we're going to have to move to more of that, that um, early voting spread over a number of days uh, allows better for social distancing than everyone voting on on a single day. So I'm sure that there'll be more emphasis across the country on early voting, mail-in voting, and perhaps in some places entirely mail-in ballots rather than in-person appearance on election day.
0: Does this help or hurt Joe Biden? I
1: have no way of knowing.
0: And before we go, Tony, give me some advice on staying sane in this stay-at-home era. Tell us what you do to to keep your equilibrium.
1: Well, first of all, I, I encourage you to, to be in touch with family and friends, particularly those who are in vulnerable populations, either due to age or health condition. Um, We may not be able to see each other personally or uh, exchange hugs. We can surely call everybody on the telephone and kind of keep up with them, make sure they have what they need. Um, And if you're part of the population that's not, not so vulnerable, you know, delivering groceries, delivering medicines to family and friends and neighbors is something we all ought to do. I've encouraged people in our political network, frankly, to give money to the Greater Chicago Food Depository. There are lots of people who are gonna be struggling financially over the next several years and um, the demand for food at our food banks and soup kitchens is going to rise. The Greater Chicago Food Depository suggests that they're going to need 15 million more above and beyond their usual uh, expenses to meet the demand. So I encourage people to contribute to the Greater Chicago Food Depository. And the other thing is, I mean, stop watching so much news. (laughs) You know, it doesn't help you to see the ticker tapes uh, of all the people who are are succumbing to the disease, and those who are passing away from it. It just makes people more anxious and nervous. So I recommend you know, things you enjoy, whether it's good music or your favorite movies, uh, our time was spent with family. Uh, I, I think if we, if we try to uh, limit our consumption of uh, the profoundly d- disturbing statistics and focus on trying to keep ourselves and the people we care about well and healthy, uh, we'll all be better off. And what's your guilty pleasure? What's my guilty pleasure?
0: I mean, um, in terms
1: of diversion, you know, diversion. Forces. No, you know, I, I, I like the crown, um, the, the, the series on, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Um, I watched a series, the letter to the King. Um, and then there was a series I watched recently on Madam CJ Walker, which was fascinating as well.
0: Okay. Tony Peckwinkle, thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe out there when you return to the, uh, The fresh air world and i'll just keep walking my dog a couple of times a day thanks so much all right you take care and we'll see okay you too and we'll see you all next week